There's a, there's a question that has been hovering the last few weeks, and I like the intrigue that it creates. It's a very compelling question to think about. What is the question? What if Jesus was serious? Yes, yeah, some of you have been around. Now, that uh, certainly creates some challenges as well, as we'll see. And it reminds me, we probably all have made at least two errors before with other people. On the one hand, surely there have to- been times when we have not taken someone seriously when we should have. Like, I should have taken my dad seriously when he told me that fence was electrified. Um, and we probably, on the other hand, have made other errors where we have taken people more seriously than we should have. You're like, I thought you told me this was a costume party. Has, has that ever happened to anyone? It happens on TV, I know, I've seen that, but I don't know if it's ever happened to anyone in real life. Or maybe you put more weight on someone's opinion than you should have, like Ben's opinion that the Bengals were going to win the Super Bowl. You can't take that seriously, right? You can't do that. Now, these last few weeks, we have forced ourselves to be honest about something. And it's this. It's that when you you take a wide-angle view of things and you observe the the diminishing impact of the church, and you see a culture that seems to be less and less interested in making room for Jesus, while there are a lot of different things that maybe you could point to that would say why those things are true, one reason could be that on the whole, we are guilty of the first error when it comes to Jesus. We haven't taken Jesus seriously enough. Too many of us who claim to trust Jesus have been demonstrating by the way that we live that there are limits on that trust. We may trust Jesus to a point, but when his words bid us to go beyond the boundaries of what we're comfortable with, of what we expected, of what our experiences can confirm to us, well then too often, too many of us have assumed, oh Jesus, Jesus must not be serious about that. Sky Jathani wrote a book called What If Jesus Was Serious? We, we stole that from him. And he simply says this. If we want the culture to take Jesus more seriously, maybe we should try it first. Now, it stings a little bit when you, when you start thinking about all of that. And I know that some of us, we, we don't want to hear that. We came in here carrying some very heavy burdens already. But, but understand that Jesus... Everything that Jesus does say, even the hard things that he says to us, are said within the context of his loving commitment to us. Any loving parent, any coach, any loving leader of any kind, they have hard words in their repertoire. Words of challenge, words of direction that are born out of the good things that they desire for you. And not every word out of Jesus' mouth is a stark challenge. But when he does start to come across that way, well, let's at least hear him out. Can we do that? Oh, man, we'll just have to get the band back out here, I guess. Um, all right, can we do that? Yeah. All right. We have been listening to Jesus with a large crowd of people over the last few weeks, the large crowds that were gathered around him on a hillside, on a mountainside. And uh, what part of the Bible are we in, if you've been around? The book of Matthew. Two people, uh, remember. It's in the New Testament of the Bible, first book of the New Testament. Someone whom history tells us was named Matthew was so compelled by what he saw in Jesus that he just had to get it together, had to write it down. This is a story that needs to be told. 
And one of the things that he captured from Jesus was what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And you can begin to turn to chapter 5 if you want. Go ahead and find it on, on your phone or your, your real paper Bible, whatever you've got there. Uh, this has been regarded as one of the most famous speeches in the history of the world. In fact, I've done this before. I did it again on Wednesday of this week. I just went and Googled most famous speeches in history. I think you got it right there? Okay, most famous speeches in history. I went down, I clicked on the very first one, which happened to be from a site called The Art of Manliness. So it's probably a little biased in a particular way, but whatever. So I went to that link, and sure enough, there it is. Number 33 on the list, Jesus, right, ahead of, or right behind Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right ahead of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not sure I agree with that assessment, but anyway, Jesus made that list, okay? Now, we've heard from some of it, the opening um, parts of the Sermon on the Mount, and it included a surprising take on what is the blessed life. And then last week, it took us on an interior examination of sorts, uh, looking at the cancerous effects of, of anger and resentment and contempt and lust. Oh, yes, Jesus thinks that even those territories are, are places where his authority extends. And now we're going to have to see if we can take Jesus seriously when he says this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is this retributive justice principle that they would have been very familiar with. This was enshrined in their culture. But I tell you something else. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, if you love those who only love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, I mean, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? They know how to do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, nothing too troubling about that. Let's go home now. What are you thinking as you hear that? Doesn't sound very practical, does it? I mean, would Jesus just have me giving to beggars until I become a beggar myself, naked on the street corner? Do not resist an evil person. Just stand there and take it. Just come back, be their punching bag. If there was an evil person attacking someone that I love, if I didn't resist them, wouldn't that call into question my love for that person in danger? And, and what kind of mockery of justice would it be if we tried to apply this at the level of governments and courts? Are we just to let lawbreakers beat and take and coerce as much as they want? To, to say nothing of the call to, to love our enemies? It's like standing in front of a sheer wall and Jesus is telling you, climb that. that. That's not hard. That's impossible. Be perfect. I'm not perfect. Jesus, you can't be serious. You can see why people would, would trust Jesus to a point, but then hesitate to go further. If we're going to get anywhere, um, 
I think we need some perspective. And my, my mind tends to, to work in, in pictures a little bit, kind of organize some things. I hope that will be helpful. Um, thinking first about uh, enemies, okay? A couple insights here. The first one having to do with enemies. Jesus is talking about how we engage with enemies, the, the people that hate us. And we might think about who that is and who you'd put in that category. It seems to me like there are different levels of enemies, okay? There's nothing scientific about this, but I think it works, all right? Someone could be the kind of enemy who would kill you, right? Very, very extreme. They would, they would take you out. They can't live with you being alive. There, there, might otherwise, there might also be enemies who, they wouldn't do that, but they would oppress you, torture you, do everything but kill you. Or you could have enemies that would abuse you, uh, hurt you, humiliate you, really do you wrong. And this is an image of a, a physical punch, but it could be something emotional to, as well, so, some significant damage. You might have enemies who wouldn't do that, but they would, they would insult you provoke you, slander you. And then, then all of us, in a milder sense, all of us have enemies who at least you know, dislike us. They, they're just not our, our best friend. They don't get along with us. They're not our biggest fan. Okay? Jesus laying out, uh, or I'm just laying it out from more severe to less severe. Again, nothing scientific. There's nothing hard and fast in the lines between these different things. But uh, this is the point of describing it here. As I think about uh, my enemies, Jesus is talking about you know, loving your enemies. And as, as I think about who those people are for me, the kinds of enemies that I've faced, I'm up here in this realm. Okay, that's me. Unless somebody wants to tell me something that I'm not aware of, this, most of the enemies that I have faced kind of look like this. Now, I know that's not true for everyone here. People in my family have had to face enemies farther on down this scale. And I, I don't know. You might think, what do your enemies look like? The enemies that Jesus is calling you to love, who is that for you? And as you consider that, whatever the case might be, understand, th this is what you really need to know. When Jesus spoke about enemies, people who would hit you and take from you, and he gives us the command to love our enemies, Jesus speaks from the perspective of someone who knew these kind of enemies, who had these kind of enemies. Jesus is not just skating above the fray, not some out-of-touch spiritual guru secluded in a fortress somewhere who's never felt the heat of hatred, never been bruised by a bully. No, Jesus knows exactly who he's talking about when he gives the command to love our enemies because theirs were the last voices he heard before he died naked in front of them. Is Jesus serious? Dead serious. His is the voice that carries weight, not mine. Let's look at something else together. Uh, see if you will accept these two things. First, uh, the world is big. You with me on that? Okay. Uh, the world is broken. You buy that? And this isn't something that uh, just is a, a big out there kind of a problem. It's close to home for all of us. Jesus is pointing out this, this relational brokenness that creates enemies. We, we all know what it's like to be divided 
from someone, to be at odds with them, to, to be an, an opponent, to have an enemy. We experience this kind of brokenness just in, in our one-to-one relationships, right here. But it, but it multiplies. It, it goes way beyond that. To every level, families are broken. There's tensions and hostilities and baggage. Battle lines are drawn at dinner tables. Communities are broken. You got uh, those people live over there and those people live over there. And oh, if only we could keep our combat between the sidelines. But we can't. Nations are broken. We, we got the reds and the blues and all kinds of more factions, and you can, buy, you can be a part of anyone, just follow the vitriol online, and you eventually group up with people who hate what you hate. I guess that's how it's done. And then even at the widest level, inter- internationally, we, we know of nations warring against nations. Some of us have lived through that. Some of us have fought in those. The whole, right now, our world is in a place of great unrest because of what's happening across the world. There, there is brokenness at every level, we know it, we feel it, we grieve it, and seriously, we want something to be done about it. Can Jesus help with that? If we take Jesus seriously, will it make any difference? Jesus knows that the way he answers that question is surprising. He knows that his command to turn the other cheek and give your coat and go the second mile, he knows that's surprising because he sees himself as a revolutionary leader and he knows that the people see him that way as well. I mean, he said it in chapter four, right before this. He said the kingdom of heaven is here. So turn your life around and get on board with it. This is good news, great news. God is doing a new thing to bring heaven to earth. See the healing. See the victory over evil. See the authority I have. Jesus is very much saying, God is setting up shop to rule this place, and I am leading the charge. And there's more that Jesus knows, and that that we all know. And that is, when you talk like that, when you start to talk about a new kingdom coming to power among people who are being heavily taxed and mistreated and who have had their freedoms taken away, as is the case with the Jewish people living under the Romans, when you start talking like that, you're going to ignite the revolutionaries, the people who are ready to go tit for tat, who are ready to knock some Roman teeth out and much more. They've been waiting for this moment and they are ready to ride into battle with Jesus and take over. We are gonna defeat you. The conditions were ripe for that. Jesus needed only to say the word. But he doesn't. That's not the trumpet he sounds. Now, this is helpful for a few reasons. One is because a lot of times when we just, in our context, when we read these verses in the Bible, we quickly think of the wife who is getting beaten by her husband. Does Jesus want her to just keep going back to him over and over? We think of the child who is being abused. Does Jesus want him to just grin and bear it? Jesus' concern does not seem to be, you know what, we, you know what? 
we've got a lot of women and children around here who need to learn some virtue by getting beat up repeatedly. That's not who he has in mind when he talks about turning the other cheek. What he does want to do, which he has to do over and over again in the Bible, especially with his own disciples, what he does want to do is redirect the energy of the person who gets all excited about a revolution that's going to happen by force. The person who thinks that that's Jesus' program, that that's how heaven on earth will be established, will cross swords with the Romans, will kill the Romans. That's what God wants. Jesus doesn't want to give any encouragement to a person who thinks that the right thing to do when a Roman soldier demands that you carry their stuff for a mile, which would have been a common thing in that day, is to kick him in the crotch and run the other way because God's going to take care of those Roman dogs and we're going to be in charge. Jesus is not saying the Jewish nation is going to rise up and defeat the Roman nation and that's what's going to fix this broken world. That would only leave more violence and evil in circulation. Jesus is trying to make something clear. The kingdom of heaven has arrived on earth, but it arrives in a whole new way. A surprising way. A radical way. If you want to live in it, if you want to follow Jesus, you might have to take a beating. You you might have things taken from you. In fact, you likely will because, because Jesus' kingdom is coming. It's coming to life in the midst of a world that is still broken, where hostilities continue to rage for now. And if that leads to someone looking down on you to the point that they slap you on the right cheek, then you do not have to cower beneath them, but nor do you rise up and power up over against them. With courage and with hope and with firm trust in Jesus as king, you can come back and present yourself as an equal and say, if you want to hit me again, then go ahead, but I am just as human as you are. Such is the creativity and grace and strength and patient endurance that is possible for those who let Jesus lead them. Jesus' kingdom is surprising. It's unlike anything this broken world has ever seen. But it pops in vivid picture even to our enemies when we double the distance, cancel the debt, present our cheek instead of our fist. All of that, of course, reflects Jesus who ate with and embraced and forgave his enemies when they pounded nails into his flesh. So yes, Jesus is serious. When he models a new way of being king and he commands his followers to follow suit, to live A heavenly life in the midst of a broken world means we will take some shots. But we don't power up and retaliate like everyone else. Neither do we cower and withdraw. But with the strength Jesus provides, we do respond, not in kind, but with surprising generosity and kindness and forgiveness and service, which is exactly what this broken world needs.
And just to be clear on a couple things. Number one, this doesn't mean that Jesus is ruling out the possibility of of a political revolution on every case or that it's not good for the world when a corrupt regime loses power. It's just that, that those events do not define the character of Jesus' kingdom. That's not the revolution that Jesus came to lead. The healing that God ultimately wants for the world doesn't come that way. And two, if you're being abused, seeking safety does not mean you're disobeying Jesus. Drawing boundaries in a relationship does not mean you're disobeying Jesus. Refusing to seek revenge does show that you're trying to obey Jesus and take him seriously, as does learning to forgive. And those are incredibly hard things to do. In fact, I don't know how you do it without the power of Christ at work in you. That reminds me that we, we've arrived at the more difficult part of Jesus' teaching, as if there wasn't enough challenge already. After saying the thing, no, the, the eye for an eye principle, that, that's not how I operate, Jesus goes on and says, well, I mean, of course, everybody knows that you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, it's all right in line with what Jesus has already said, but it just seems like the volume is turned up even more because Jesus, he's now explicit. He, he, he's, he, he's saying the L word, love. And I'm, I might rather take another shot in the face from my enemy rather than bring their face into the intimate space of prayer before God. I don't want to think about them there. I don't want to, to wish for God's goodwill in their direction. They can take my coat and move on, but does, does love demand more than that? And again, the, the enemies I'm talking about, they, they, They're not even a threat compared to what some people deal with. I felt like I needed to be schooled by someone who was a little more fire-tested in taking Jesus seriously than I am. And so I listened to some Martin Luther King Jr. He's apparently given some famous speeches too, right? I mean, he made made the list, right? Um, and, And he's faced these kind of enemies. I found a message of his from November 1957. And he preached on, on these verses from the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, option one for today was we just play that and Luke shuts up. Might have been better. Uh, I almost just shrink in admiration of his, the way he revered Jesus' words. And uh, he, he feels like he has more maturity and courage and thoughtfulness at age 28 is when he gave this sermon. And I'm 40. It's remarkable. And you know, when he, um, he began preaching, he did something really interesting. He calls this a familiar subject. Something he'd preached on more than once before, just at that church alone. He goes on to say, I, I try to make it something of a custom or a tradition to preach from this passage of Scripture at least once a year. Adding new insights that I develop along the way out of the new experiences as I give these messages. This is a discipline. What, what, what do you want to be disciplined in, Dr. King? What do you want to be ingrained as a habit? In, in what way do you want to train your reflexes and instincts in loving my enemies? Which enemies? Oh, yeah, these ones. There's so many things that are fascinating about uh, the, the sermon that he preaches after reading the scripture. 
Uh, he goes on to say, now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. I, I can't talk like him, but, you know, that's what he was saying. He refers to the international scene where at that time America was going toe-to-toe with Russia. Any nation or anyone who is going to love their enemy must examine themselves. The line dividing good from evil does not run between you and me. It runs right down the middle of the human heart. And the same is true that in my enemy dwells just as much of the image of God as dwells in me. And then he talks about the L word, which is misunderstood then just as it is now. I mean, we, we use the same word to say we love sunsets and ice cream flavors and our pets and, and our spouses. And what we often have in mind is this feeling that overtakes us. We want, we want to fall in love as if the fates are going to zap us with some sentimental connection that we hope lasts for a while. But love has no substance beyond those warm fuzzies. And that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your enemies. That kind of love, agape, the Bible calls it, Dr. King says, it's something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all people. It's a love that seeks nothing in return. It's an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of people. That love comes through a disciplined pursuit. You don't just wait and wake up one day and suddenly discover, oh, there's love for my enemies. Look, I found it. It happened to me. I fell in love with people who do awful things to me. No, agape love, a generous commitment of goodwill toward your enemies. That's like iron that is hammered out on the anvil with Jesus. Our world world is looking for love, desperate for real love. That's the only kind of love that has the power to heal what's broken. It's not available on Amazon. Alexa, add love for enemies to our shopping list. We can pick it up later. No, where would you find it? Where would you find that kind of love? It was speaking on a hillside 2,000 years ago. With the intention, with the intention that it would take root in a community. A community, a heavenly community that is held together by Jesus. A community that would be strong enough to endure the shrapnel that is flying all around the earth. A a community that is pure enough to be a healing agent in a world that so desperately needs it. That kind of love. That's where you find this kind of love. It's a community called the church. And at the center of the church is Jesus, who is loving you and who is loving me, making enemies into friends, and who is empowering us to extend that same love to our enemies. The the church is, is literally formed by Jesus' words when they are taken seriously. Again, like iron on the anvil, there's heat and hammering. The church isn't just a group of people who feels like loving their enemies. They take Jesus seriously and make a disciplined commitment to loving behavior, which then, yes, can transform even our feelings. 
Love that reaches across the divide is refined in the fire as we pray for our enemies. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That's the church's prayer. That's on the next page. And when the church takes Jesus seriously, it, has, it reflects into the broader world a kind of love that is so compelling and so beautiful and the world is desperate to see what that kind of love looks like. Because again, radiating out from the center of the church is the love of Jesus who gave himself for you and for me, who washed the feet of those who betrayed him, who dealt gently with those who roughed him up, who forgave those who whipped his back. Jesus, who was powerful enough to stop a storm with a word. But when he looked at the crowds who were shouting for his death, He used his words to pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is dead serious because that is what the world needs more than anything else. And where are they going to find it if we don't take Jesus seriously? That's a question that I think Jesus wants us to own, not not just collectively as a church, but, but personally for every one of us. Jesus desperately wants every person on the planet to taste the goodness of heaven. That's why he came. That's why he said it's here. It's right here in front of you. And there will be a day when all of the shrapnel stops flying and everything broken will be healed fully and finally. That is our hope. But until Jesus initiates that on the cosmic level, the invitation comes down to each one of us to be reconciled to God and then to be agents of reconciliation. The love of Christ to you and then the love of Christ through you. Forgiveness for you. Forgiveness from you. That is how you become perfect, which isn't referring to some moral uh, uh, flawlessness, but to completeness, fullness. It's how you fully become the being that you were created to be. You never look more like the God who created you than when you're loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, forgiving those who wrong you, blessing those who curse you. We have to take that calling seriously. We have to take it seriously right here in our one-to-one relationship if we're going to be of any use bringing healing to what's wrong out here. You want to change the world? You want the, the church to have the kind of impact that Jesus imagined? You want the world to take Jesus seriously? Well, then each one of us has to do it. So what would it look like for you? to take Jesus seriously. I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of enemies you're facing or what sort of a threat they pose. But I do know that continuing in a spite-filled, hate-filled vendetta back and forth, that's a threat as well. Whatever damage might be done on the outside, it will rot you from the inside out. Who do you need to forgive? Who, who do you need to release from a death of, of any kind? What social media posts do you need to take down and repent of? 
Again, if you're in danger, seeking safety might be the first thing you need to do as one step in the long journey of a disciplined commitment to love the person who's done you wrong. Whose name from your list of enemies needs to go on your prayer list? Jesus' words weren't spoken so that courts would just let criminals off the hook when they break the law. They were spoken as an invitation to be part of a community that reflects to the rest of the world what it looks like to live by the law of Christ. In the nitty-gritty, loving, serving, giving, forgiving, and praying even for the people who would kill us. It's what the survivors and family members of those who were killed by Dylan Roof at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, have done. And that stands as one more example of exactly the kind of love that the world so desperately needs.